welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and today my guest is Emily Joy Allison. Emily is a queer author, artist, public speaker, and yoga teacher with a passion for fighting sexualized violence and purity culture in Christian communities. Emily holds a BA in philosophical theology and apologetics from Moody Bible Institute and is currently pursuing a Master's of Theological Studies with a concentration in religion, gender, and sexuality from Vanderbilt Divinity School. I first interviewed Emily last spring, where she shared details about her story, growing up in the purity culture, and what led her to start the Church 2 movement. But in this episode, we take a deeper dive and discuss topics we didn't get into in our first conversation. Emily shares more of her story and how she came out as a queer woman after being raised in the purity culture. We also talk about the history of purity culture in the church and how complementarian beliefs in the church provide fertile breeding ground for sexual abuse to survive and thrive. Emily also shares some hard truths about homophobia in the church and how it is sexual abuse. Finally, we talk about Emily's debut book just released this spring called Church 2, how purity culture upholds abuse and how to find healing. Listen in as Emily shares more of her story. All right, we will get started. Emily, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you for having me again. Well, I am thrilled to have you back again. Like we were just chatting, I was looking at my notes from last year. So it was actually 311 of 2020, I guess, that we talked last time. And oh, wow. Good. We were babies. Yeah. We knew nothing. That's kind of what I felt like reading your book and then looking at my notes. I'm like, did I ask her that? <laughs> really? And then look at the last year. Good Lord, everything that's happened. Little did we know what was starting. I think you had just like been in um, the tornado when we. Yeah, I right guess 311 would have been about a week after a tornado hit my house. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. All the fun a year can bring and where we were at. So, I'm looking forward to talking today because I kind of feel like it's going to be part two, a year later of our conversation, because I feel like we really just covered basics in that conversation. And you hadn't written your book yet, Me Too, or Church Too, excuse me, Church Too, that just came out. And so we're going to talk more about that as well. So before we get started, just for the sake of people who have not heard about you or know much about you, just tell us really basically where you live right now, what your day-to-day looks like, and then we'll dive in. Yes. Um, so welcome, uh, everybody. Uh, my yes. name is Emily Joy Allison and I, uh, am currently living in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been here, um, about seven, seven and a half years. Um, I live here with my fiance and our dog Harley and our cat Debbie. Um, and, uh, my fiance and I are both currently, uh, students at Vanderbilt divinity school. She is about to get her MDiv. Um, and I am pursuing my MTS masters of theological studies, um, which was different last year. I hadn't, I hadn't enrolled yet or anything like that, but, um, did end up getting accepted. So I'm just finishing up my second semester right now. I've got two more after that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we're just kind of hanging out here in the pandemic. So that's right. Still a year later. Okay. Um, yeah, that's perfect. And like we both said, so much has happened in the last year, but especially Mm -hmm. in your life and a book coming out. And I plan to, for this conversation, I'm going to link up our first conversation because in that we dove a lot more into the specifics of your story, where you were raised. And that's kind of what this podcast does. I want to just get into the nitty gritty of people's stories, but people can go hear that because now I want to talk about more about your book. But before we do that, I feel like really we need to rehash in a nutshell, the hashtag that you and a friend started. Um, So just give us just a really brief 
when and what happened there and how Church 2 started. Yeah, for those who haven't heard of it, um, Church 2 uh, was an accident. <laughs> it was not something that uh, was this like intended um, planned thing. But at a certain point when, um, you know, the Me Too movement was going viral on social media in the fall of 2017, which we know now, you know, um, Toronto Burke has been organizing under the Me Too movement for a decade um, or more even at this point. Uh, but that was kind of when the hashtag started to be this sort of viral social media phenomenon. Um, and at that time, uh, I came forward with a story of abuse from my adolescence where I was kind of groomed for a romantic relationship by, um, it wasn't a pastor, but he was a, a youth leader in the mega church that we went to, um, and that abusive situation was subsequently like swept under the rug and I was blamed for it. And then I just kind of sat on this story for 10 years um, until the Me Too movement, you know, went viral on social media. And so um, that evening I shared, it was November of 2017, um, shared my story on Twitter um, and realized pretty quickly that like people were engaging with this, with this topic and people were reaching out and saying, oh, something similar happened to me in, in this church that I went to, or, you know, I had a, I had a, a similar, you know, type of experience when I was younger. And, um, so a friend and I were like, well, that seems like a conversation that needs to be had. Um, and, and not that, you know, I think every church to story is a me too story, but there's also some sort of specific aggravating factors, I guess I would call them for church two stories. Like, so for example, I, I use this example all the time, but like, you don't necessarily see Harvey Weinstein, right. Um, justifying his, his actions with a chapter and a verse from the Bible. Um, but you do see pastors doing that. Right. So there's this added layer of like spiritual and religious trauma on top of what is already like this, you know, sexual, romantic, sometimes relational trauma. Um, and so, so when you put those things together, you know, it's kind of like, well, we do have to have a conversation about this that, that's specific, that is targeted to these situations. And so, um, yeah, kind of batted a hashtag back and forth that night. And we were like, well, let's just let's just tweet out church, too, because we're like, it's short. It's not that many characters. People right. will understand what it's referring to. And, you know, that'll be it. And uh, it went viral overnight. And hundreds of people have been using the tag every day uh, ever since then. Mm. So, yeah, it's very much. um it's very much a, a phenomenon that continues to, to grow and unfold and become something, you know, new and really quickly, you know, I was like, this is much bigger than me, right? Like I shared my right. story, but now this has become something that is so much larger than anything I could have ever intended. Um, and so a couple of years later, I ended up um, signing on to write a book about it. And it just came out about three weeks ago. It three came weeks. out three weeks okay. ago today. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And the hashtag, that was November, 2017, right? When you yeah. shared mm -hmm. that, that's what I had in my notes from last year. Okay. Yeah. So, and now here we are. And like you said, it's so much bigger. And even when I talked to you last time, I didn't just realize how big it was. I think reading your book, I'm like, this follows not to center myself, but mm. my own deconstruction journey, because yeah. so much stems, whether you're a survivor or not of church sexual violence, which I think a lot, most women are on some level, but yeah. uh, most women, most marginalized, most people for everybody from the LGBTQ yeah. community is a survivor of some sort of church violence, really. And so, so much, and that's what I noticed reading your book. I'm like, my deconstruction started with all of these things from the whole complementarian women can't be pastors. That's what started with me. And then breaking it down all the way to white supremacy and um, affirming the LGBTQ community. So it's just amazing. Like you said, how much it stems to everything. Yeah. And 
our first conversation and your book, you share more of your story of being um, the ramifications from the church and from your family and everything. So people can read your book or listen to the other podcasts about that. Um, but before we dive into, and I didn't tell you this when I was talking about what we're going to talk about. So I hope you're okay with it. But oh, yeah. I would love for you to share, and you do this in your book so well, but just the brief history, because I think it's so important of why the evangelical church especially clings on to this purity movement. Um, yeah. So could you share just a tad bit of the history because it relates to the pro-life and just totally. it's, it's fascinating and it gives a lot more clarity as well. Yeah, I think um, it, I say this in the book, but lying about uh, something having always been a particular way is one of the ways that abusive power structures are maintained. Yes. So a lot of us don't actually know our own history about this and yeah. we don't actually know why we're swimming in the soup that we're currently swimming in. So to me, mm -hmm. um, history telling is an act of resistance, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's an act of saying, okay, actually I'm calling you out on the lie that this has always been this way. Um, and so in, in this, I'm not necessarily doing like apologetics for Christianity, right? right? Like I'm not saying that Christianity you know, ha used to be sex positive and then purity culture came in, in the, in the 20th century and ruined it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you can go all the way back to Augustine and see that purity uh, and, you know, bodily oppression has always been kind of a struggle for Christianity. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not, when I say purity culture, I'm not talking about like the historic sex negativity of, of historic Christianity, even though I do think that's something worth talking about, but um, I'm talking about specifically um, those of us who are millennial, uh, Gen Z and Gen X a little bit too, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and the, the specific context of, of modern phenomena of purity culture that we experience in the church starting in about the seventies, um, it, the, the transition began to happen in the seventies. So this book on my shelf, Virgin Nation by Sarah Mosliner. Um, I've been reading that and that actually informs, a, that has informed a lot of my sort of um, nuance around this history telling uh, because there is quite a bit to talk about, like, for example, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s as a result of um, post-World War II concern in the United States around like um, national security and how mm -hmm. that uh, issued in racial and sexual gatekeeping and laws to, because there was this idea that like national security means having a strong family, um, and a strong society. Right. And this, this came about as a result of the end of world war two, and then moving into like cold war. And then of course the anxieties of the sexual revolution in the sixties. And so there's yeah. a lot to that. Right. Um, so for the pre seventies stuff, I would say go read Sarah Mosliner. Um, mm -hmm. she's doing a lot of that and, and talks a lot about like uh, Victorian purity mores and like how those kind of extended into the 20th century, but also fundamentally like transformed in that way. Um, cause there's a lot, uh, anyway, we could go totally, I'm going to, I'm like, okay, we got to do two hours, Emily, if we're going to yeah. <laughs> No, it is fascinating. But I love how you said history is resistance because that is what I'm learning too. This knowing yeah. our whitewashed history is not is how we got here. And no, all and you, you talk to churches and they're like, well, Christianity has always been pro-life and affirm that sex is right. only for marriage. And I'm like, that's actually deeply not true. So for example, so what happened is this, um, in the seventies, that is when a lot of these court cases started to come to bear, uh, with desegregation, right? So, uh, the really fame, and there's, there were several, but the really famous one that a lot of you know, conservative Christians know about is Bob Jones because mm -hmm. Bob Jones refused to, um, I can't remember if it was refused to admit people of color or refused to take 
their anti-interracial dating laws off the books. I can't, it was one of those two things, but they were, they were resisting segregation on, on some fronts at their school. And so uh, the Supreme Court of the United States said, okay, you can't uh, have your tax exempt status anymore if you are not going to participate in desegregation. Um, and so that was kind of like, the final nail in the coffin, right? Because resisting desegregation had been a really Christian thing. Like that was a that was basically how Christians were organizing politically. That was the so the way that we would think of the pro-life movement now, this like, you know, so many Christians will vote for anybody, as we just found out. <laughs> Doesn't I matter who they are. Yep. <laughs> they say that they're pro-life, right? That's how desegregation was at the time. But then they realized that actually makes us look bad. That makes us look racist. And also we're losing. So we have to come up with a different thing to organize around. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is where abortion came in. All right. So a lot of people don't know this, um, but Roe v. Wade was in 1973. Um And in 1973, 1974, and I believe also 1976, the Southern Baptist Convention reaffirmed their commitment to the fact that women should have choice uh, in whether to carry Mm -hmm. a pregnancy to term and said that uh, there was plenty of good reasons to get an abortion, including for the mental and emotional health of the mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So now the Southern Baptist Convention, which is this like, I mean, pro-life just to the point of nonsense at this point Mm -hmm. in, in society. Um, actually has this history of being fairly laissez-faire about yeah, they, about they thought it was a catholic issue like well, that that's is, the thing like, yeah so yeah, in, the, yeah. in, in um in the 1970s also christianity today uh which has you know been a very uh i would say moderate on a good day is christianity today um but conservative to moderate publication in the 1970s was actually publishing um stuff about how like you know, birth control is not uh, abortion. And evangelical Christians did not want to touch that issue because it was a Catholic thing mm-hmm. um, because they were like, well, that's for the Catholics. It's not for us. And a lot of, as you know, the sexual revolution had just happened. A lot of Christian women who were married monogamously to men were having these questions like, is it, is it ethical for me to use birth control? Right. Because I'm hearing that it's abortion. And so then all the Christians were having to go, actually, no, it's fine. Like you can totally use birth control with your husband. That's, that's a fine thing to do. Right. right? right. These were the questions that people were dealing with at this point. Fred Clark, slacktivist, says that no Christian who was born before the 70s grew up believing that life begins at conception and that like the only historical Christian position is pro-life. And he said no Christian who was born after the 80s grew up not believing that. Powerful, yeah. Very, very big, big shift that happened there. Mm -hmm. So abortion became this sort of rallying cry. And along with abortion come a lot of other things, right? Who can reproduce? Like, are they allowed to have the choices that they want to make about that? Mm -hmm. Um, This is why uh, homosexuality is such a threat also to go back to like the national security, right? Because you can't produce more good white Christian babies if people are getting abortions. And so there's all of these tie-ins to this, right? All right, then in the 80s, the AIDS epidemic. And then we start having all this violence against abortion providers. And then, you know, by the 90s, we've got that very first true love weights, like forks in the, uh, all the little, the purity pledge cards in the lawn at the Southern Baptist Convention, right? And this all happened really quickly. So yes. by the time I was born in 1991, I had no hope <laughs> yeah. of avoiding yeah. Because yeah. I was I was born straight in to this environment. Um, and so people my age couldn't avoid it. 
So it's just this very interesting thing where you're shot into the world in 1991 and you grow up thinking that like, this is the only Christian thing and this is the whole world and the most historic position and the most popular one. And then you find out like 10 years before I was born, a lot of people would have laughed at some of those things, Mm -hmm. but this very Mm -hmm. particular cultural and historical phenomenon that led to this, right? Um, and so, yeah. And that's what, there's a a powerful quote. You say a whole generation of us were sacrificed on the mm -hmm. altar of abstinence. And it's so true. And when we think of purity culture, we think of abstinence and modesty and that being taught, but that's what we talk about today. That's so much more than that. But can you give us, I know you've done this a million times, but just a a working definition of purity culture. So if you're totally have had your head in the sand, you don't know what we're talking about. Here you go. Yeah. No, I actually, I I get asked this question literally every time, but I actually love answering it because I think it's really important um, because a lot of people have this idea that purity culture is like, we've all seen like that episode of John Oliver, where he like showed the clips of the really scary, like sex educators, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. who like go Mm -hmm. into schools and yell about genital contact and (laughs) the ones where they tell people, oh, you're like a piece of sticky tape. You know, you had sex. And so now you can't bond with people and no one's going to want you anymore. And people think that's purity culture. And I'm like, it can be, right. That can be purity culture, but purity culture is not just that there's a cool, like hip, gentle purity culture also. Right. And it's, so it's not about the delivery method. It is about the message. And so purity culture is the culture that is created by theologies that teach mandatory abstinence of all kind, all, all sexual abstinence until legal monogamous marriage between a cisgender heterosexual man and a cisgender heterosexual woman for life or else. And, yes. and what the, or else is, I always say this, Oh, here comes the, the car. So the dog is going to freak out in a second. Um, okay. <laughs> what the, uh, what the, or else is your mileage is going to vary on that. Cause it depends on your community, right? So some right. communities are more heavy handed on or else no one's going to want you, right? Or else you'll have a bad sex life with your future spouse. Sometimes it's more like, or else you're going to go to hell and burn alive forever, right? right? But the, the point is there's always a carrot on a stick. There's right. always like a threat to ensure compliance. And I think when we last spoke, I was just starting kind of my, in the start of my deconstruction journey and also having some honest conversations with my daughter that's 18 that was- yeah that I raised in the purity culture. So yeah. a lot is being revealed to me, the depths of what she experienced. Yeah. And when I was first deconstructing all this, it was like just being raised in that abstinence and modesty and all of that. But I think, and I'm, I'm like, I told you, she's reading this book with me. And I think her and I might actually record a podcast of some of her experiences. We thought about it last year, but I'm glad we waited. Cause I yeah. think that we both needed her and I needed a year to process more. Um, so I don't, I don't want to just skip over the importance of, and the harm of teaching abstinence and modesty, but I, we talked about that so much that I want to dive into the deeper levels of it. So I want to start really basic because I feel like for me and so many others, this is where the deconstruction begins. And then I want to move into, um, homophobia as yeah. a, one of the tenets of this. So I want to start really basic with the complementarian setup that so many churches have, because yeah. this is what started it for me. Like yeah, I started questioning totally. when I got in trouble for speaking to a group of teaching a marriage class. And I was the only woman teaching a group of men and women. So that's what started me like, wait, yeah. what? But then it led to everything else. So the basic tenet of complementarianism are fundamentally at odds with building a world in which women, LGBTQ and non-binary persons and people of all genders are seen as equal. So tell me how like just the complementarian, just explain in a nutshell how that just sets up. Like you can't have be fighting church too and have a yeah. complementarian 
ministry or set up in your church. Yes. Okay. So I didn't put this in the book. I probably should have, but my favorite way to think about this is because a lot of times what, what complementarianism, what complementarianism says is men and women are, and there's only men and women, by the way. Uh, and right. Okay. So this is not to say anything about folks who, um, are trans, who are gender non-conforming, who are intersex and who identify as a binary gender, right? Like there's all kinds of issues with it, but just, just to enter into the world of complementarianism for a moment. Um, it says often the way it's, it's phrased is that men and women are, um, equal in value, but just different in role. So it's not saying men and women are, are differently valued. They're saying it's equal in value, but just different in role. And so I like to think about if I was an alien from another planet (laughs) and I came down to earth and I saw a community like a church, for example, um, where there was two types of people in that community. And one of those types of people could speak, lead, stand in stage, preach, pray, and the other could not and had to sit silently and not teach people. What I think to myself as an alien, as a Martian, wow, this is really a community where everyone is equal in value, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Right. I sure would not you. think that. If I was Correct. an alien dropped onto planet <laughs> Earth, I would not think that. And uh-huh. that teaches us that you can actually, through your actions, say more about what you truly believe than through your speech a lot of times, right? So we may say men and women are equal in value, but actually everything that we're doing is saying otherwise. And um, the end result of that is saying otherwise. So like you can say equal in value, equal in value until the cows come home, but no one would ever think that who was not already pre-committed to your ideology. And that already automatically sets up a problem, not just to mention all we're doing is saying male and female, but it's setting up a problem of the equality, the female submission, the male headship. I mean, it all plays into that. And even when I started questioning it, like I had no idea how much it played into it. And just going back to some of my daughter's experiences of telling me how guys in youth group would grab her butt and all that crap. Mm -hmm. And it's like, or say derogatory things about girls. Why would we expect more if women are not equal, if they know women yeah. can't be pastors or leaders or elders. So yeah, it's well, and so to be prob- honest with you, like on that front too, I don't, people ask me all the time, like, do you think purity culture just harms women or does it harm everybody else? And I'm like, I think purity culture harms everybody. Yeah. And I think one of the specific ways that purity culture harms men is that men are socialized to believe about themselves, that they are just like these insatiable sex monsters who cannot help but do whatever it is that their basest instincts tell them to do unless the women around them are very, very, very careful and behave in a very specific way so as to rein in their desires, right? And I'm like, so we are actually home growing our own abusers, number one. People act like, oh, the abusers are infiltrating the church. And sometimes that does happen, right? Abusers get attracted to church environments because um, there's very little systematic accountability and stuff. But um, in another very real sense, we are home growing our own abuse problem in the Christian church. And that's part of why. God, it's so true, Emily. I mean, I hate to keep sharing about my daughter. She's okay with it, but it's just like, you know, the guy she's dating right now, it's not born and raised in church. Probably. I mean, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. He's been the most respectful, most equal. So yes, we are growing men. I have a story Uh, about that. When we get to the stuff about LGBTQ theology, I have a story about that. Okay. Perfect. So, and that's, 
also help people see like, this is all so interrelated. So egalitarian, complementarian, we think, oh, maybe that's not a big deal. It is huge. Like it starts there and it trickles down. Yeah. So we're going to skip over kind of other levels of relatedness because I think so many of us, like I said, for me, I started questioning women in ministry. And then I was like, that is a non-issue now. Seriously, like that's just a non-issue. So we find a church that is egalitarian, but it's non-affirming. Right. So that... But we've come a long way, Emily. Now we're in an affirming or egalitarian. So, but I just want people to see all the ramifications. So I'm going to go back to reading a passage in your book because we're going to now talk about how homophobia is Mm -hmm. so completely tied to all of this. So you talk about in chapter six of your book, how when this came out, the news media almost gave church to more attention than churches. And we did not talk about this in our last conversation. I'm going to read your word. You say church two began when a queer woman came forward about her abuse in the evangelical church, a queer woman who wasn't sorry for being queer, who wasn't running back to the evangelical church with her tail between her legs, promising to be celibate or go to conversion therapy if they had only accepted her. A queer woman who was well-educated in the finer points of evangelical apologetics and held a degree from one of the most respected institutions of higher learning. A queer woman who had nothing left to lose. So that is what we didn't talk about last time. And I think is a huge part of your story and who you are. So when you came up with the hashtag was brave and shared your story, you were married at that time to a man. I was. Yeah. Okay. So tell us, let's dive into that part of your story. If people are like wondering, well, how can that be? And what (laughs) does this have to do with church too? So start where you want with that, Emily, and we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah. Okay. So I guess I'll say this in two pieces. The thing that I was going to say about, you know, your daughter and her boyfriend. So I, I don't know if y'all do the Enneagram, but I am like a hard five, um, yeah. like a really hard five. So sometimes like I'm a little, Oh, bit same like, Emily. I didn't yes, hear you say okay. five, Yeah, five and one ish. I got to figure that out, but yeah. I'm a five. Yes. No, I'm okay. like a hard five. So for me, I can be like a little bit of like a sort of like a feelings robot. So when I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm working through stuff, it's usually like in a very like spreadsheets in my brain, like mm-hmm. segmented sort of way. And so, uh, I remember the day that I decided that being gay wasn't a sin anymore. And it was long before I ever knew that I was gay. It was when I was single and it was like, oh, I don't know, maybe like six months before I stayed, before I started dating the guy that I married. And I was on OkCupid, the dating website. OkCupid, okay. right? Okay. And I liked that one better than the other ones, like better than like Tinder and stuff. Cause on OkCupid, mm-hmm. you could ask questions and see people's answers before you talk to them. Okay. Which was like really helpful for me for like weeding out people that I didn't want to talk to. Um, and at the time I thought being gay was a sin. So I had answered the question like, do you think that marriage should only be between a man and a woman with yes? And then I said that, I mean, this was a long time ago. I was like, I guess probably, oh, 20, 21. This gives all of us hope, Emily, right? Yeah. Like you yeah. answered that. Okay. No, I did. And I yeah. said, I said, I only want to, I only want to potentially be matched with people. I, I mean, at this point it was only men. I wasn't obviously looking right. for women, but I said, I right. only want to be matched with people um, that also agree with that statement. Cause I was like, I want to have like similar values in life. Right. And that lasted a few weeks. And I started realizing that every single man that answered that question with, yes, I think only marriage should be for man and woman was also saying all kinds of horrifying, ableist, racist, terrible, terrible things. I was looking at all their answers and I'd be like, oh my God, like Mm -hmm. this is terrifying. So sexist, so misogynistic, someone that I would never want to speak to in real life. We have this one thing. And then I was like, 
if I have to turn off that question in order to find people that I want to talk to, maybe I should change my mind about that. Like maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. And so that was the day I was like, that's it. Like I'm done with this. And so all that being said, I mean, that's, that's a little anecdote, but the, but the point of the story is that I became, um, affirming for other people long before I ever thought to myself that maybe that could apply to me too. And, you know, that was and a you grew journey. up, I mean, I think part of that journey too is growing up in the purity culture and people can say, well, how can that be? Like you're married that long, but you growing well, it's up totally in the, possible, right, though. right. And you're growing up in the church, purity Especially culture. if you're five. I mean, you get it. Like <laughs> my specific <laughs> right. personality, I understand how it happens just generally, but for me specifically, I'm like, that makes all the sense in the entire world. Right. Purity culture divorced me from my connection to my own bodies and my own desires long before I ever had my first boyfriend. By the time I had a boyfriend, I, the wire between my brain and my heart had already been cut. And it was never an option for yeah. you to consider like and if you ever felt that my god that was sin and that's shame like put that down to the, any same-sex attraction it's just not an option and i think in your book you share about the percentage of homeless youth that mm-hmm. are from the lgbtq community wild over representation uh-huh what, what yeah. was it like 40 or 50 percent or something okay. like that yeah right wild and over so representation and i've seen it with people that have confided in my daughter yeah they are terrified to come out and mm-hmm. that is suppressed. They're not coming out. And that is a form of sexual abuse and se- or I'm sorry, sexual violence and directly related to this. So that's part of your story. I mean, to be honest with you, I've talked to plenty of therapists and clinicians and people who talk to folks like regular, I mean, you know, I interviewed some folks, but people who like daily talk to folks for their jobs who have said that mm-hmm. like purity culture is a sexual abuse. It is a sexual violence. Like you don't have to, we think of sexual violence as like a stranger jumped out of a bush and assaulted me. Um, right. right? And that does happen. That can happen, but, but sexual violence and sexual abuse is this very, very large spectrum of behaviors and experiences. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think it's important to like name that because especially as women, I think we are, we are conditioned to like kind of self gaslight and talk about our experiences. Like they weren't that bad, you know, and it's like actually saying they were that bad though. They actually were. Um, but anyway, so all that to say, um, I married a man. He is great. We are still friends. Like our, our divorce did not occur because, because of abuse or because, you know, we did not care for each other or, you know, fell out of love or something like that. And honestly, I think talking about my divorce and the reasons behind it is still a little bit difficult because I think that when people look at a situation like me, right. Um, where, you know, my dad was this pastor and he's still in ministry. He has a pretty well-known ministry. And, you know, I was raised in this like homeschool Christian family and I got straight A's and went to Moody and married a man and like did all the things I was supposed to do. And people look at my situation and they're like, God, what happened? Like she went off the rails, you know? And, and they want like these, like, they want these easy explanations for it. Right. But I don't, I mean, to be, to be truthful with you, um, I don't think of my, my sexuality or my gender identity as like this immutable, unchangeable essence inside of myself that I was just trying to uncover. And like, I got divorced because I finally dug down far enough to find out that I had been gay this whole time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think that was it. I don't, I don't think that I got divorced because I was finding out that I was immutably gay necessarily. Um, Although I do use gay and lesbian to describe myself, but all, all of those words are sort of like approximations. I got divorced because I needed to grow and I was growing in a way that made it incompatible for me to be married to a man. 
right? I was growing in my, not just my self-understanding, but like uh, my actual self was growing. I was changing. I think we get really threatened by this idea that like our sexualities and our gender identities, like are subject to change, right? Like can right. be, right. And, and that's something I think we need to, we need to consider, right? And I understand why, because that has been weaponized against queer folks by like conversion therapists, right? Like you can change, you can change when the <laughs> truth is like God has changed and everything is changed all the time. Um, you can't not change. So the question right. is, how are we changing? Are we aware right. of it? Are we, um, you know, doing the inner work to, to change with integrity, but we're all always changing. So all that to say, um, when I, when church two happened, when I first, you know, tweeted out my story and stuff, I was still married. Um, and I, at the time was kind of, I was, I was identifying as bisexual essentially. And I, I right. also kind of have a hard time talking about that because people are horribly biphobic, um, to folks who are bisexual and say like, you just need to pick a side, or this is just like a stopping right. point on the way to either homosexuality or heterosexuality. And that's right. not true. Um, I think for me, it was not a pit stop. It was, I chose that word at the time because I thought to myself, well, I'm married to a man, but I'm also attracted to women. Therefore I must be bisexual. Right. Um, right. and, and to be honest, I was, I was scared of, you know, having to burn down my whole life, which I ended up having right. to do anyway. Right. Um, so that was I, part of your journey. I mean, my yeah. gosh, we can't just get from A to Z. We have steps along well, the journey. And I think too, when you're married to someone, it's, it's more than just like, oh, I'm just going to break up with them. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like we stood up in front right. of God and everyone and promised to love each other. So I'm not just going to dub you, you know, on a hunch. Um, right. So, so there was all of that that went into it. Right. And I think a big part of me, uh, Church Two launched in November of 2017, and by November of 2018, we had decided to get divorced. Okay. It was it was less than a year before okay. all of that came to a head, and I, I think Church Two had pretty much everything to do with it because what what I learned through Church Two was I could rip off the band aid and heal mm. not just myself but other people, mm, everyone cool. that I was in contact with, right. And so I realized that with my marriage, I was like, I I've been waiting to like rip off this bandaid. Cause I just don't want to do it. Like I don't, but I'm like, actually when I rip off the bandaid, I heal. And then everyone around me benefits. Um, yes. and I think, I think that is another thing that specifically, like if you've been socialized as a woman, like there's this sense of everyone around you benefits when you make yourself smaller, everyone around you benefits when you just don't make your desires that big of a deal and selflessly serve everyone else. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I have found the opposite to be true in my life. When I am true to myself, when I rip off the bandaid, when I tell my story, other people benefit as well as me. So yeah. So that's, was that so that's kind of how that happened. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, and I think that's huge. And I, I don't know, I can't believe we didn't talk about it last time, but I think you weren't, I think you weren't as like, that wasn't reading your book. I see just what a part of that yeah. movement is for your story. You say my identity as a gay woman and my commitment to justice for all LGBTQ persons will always inform the work I do with fighting sexualized violence in the church. Because that's part it, of it. Yes. People really want to separate it out. And that's the, that's a big problem. I think is that People want to act like homophobia, right? Which is what some people call non-affirming theology. I try not to use that word too much okay. because okay. I think it is nice, right? You're right. You're book. so right. I yeah. think I use it in the book, but I, I think it like legitimates it, right? It makes it mm -hmm. sound as though it's like an appropriate thing to believe. Like imagine if we called Nazism just like non-affirming right, right. Of Jewish folks, right? That's, That's right. 
that but this is this is the equivalent of what we're doing, right? You're right. Um, it's very so kind wording. Yeah. It's it's very uh it's optimistic. It's just very <laughs> optimistic wording. Yeah, um, you're right. Yeah. So this non-affirming theology, this homophobia, um, people want to act like that's a separate issue You're right. from sexual violence. And I'm like, no church to story. I don't care what church it's in. What it could be in a progressive church in a, you know, independent fundamental Baptist church, no church to story happens in a vacuum. Yes. It doesn't just yes. drop down like a meteor. There are, there are whole environments around these stories. Right. And kind of the, I don't know, I guess what the word is I'm looking for, like the base of purity culture, right. Is this idea that there is one right way to have a sexuality, a gender identity, a body, one right way to love and have pleasure. Right. How is that not connected to homophobia? It's so connected. And I, and I think, and as people have got you, I mean, people have to read your book. I mean, I recommend a lot of books on the show, but I feel like this is an essential reading, whether you are a survivor, whether you have daughters, sons, whether you're brought up in the church. I mean, it's just such essential reading, especially in deconstructing your faith or questioning a few things, you'll see how it is related. And you talk about in this chapter that a lot of people are all on board with church too, until this. Yeah. And you can't be on board fighting church too, if you are homophobic or love the, love this, hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sinner. sin. Yeah. I mean, you can try certainly, but like, ultimately what we're doing is like, well, what we're talking about is the difference between like changing the bandaid on a wound and like doing surgery. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so if mm-hmm. you are committed to homophobia, if you're committed to complementarianism, if you're committed to no sex before marriage, if you're committed to all these things, what you're going to be doing is you're going to re- be reacting to instances mm-hmm. of sexual abuse forever. And we can talk about better and worse reactions, right? Like for example, right. does your pastor know if they, according to the laws of your state are a mandatory reporter, right? Um, right. Do you know who the right person to make a report to is if the pastor is the one that did it? Right. Do you like these sorts of things, these, these right. sort of like practical. And we um, talked, that was what we talked about more in our last conversation. Yeah. 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 And so, so these, these are important, these questions of right. like a better and a worse reaction. Certainly we have to talk about those things. We absolutely need to. But unless you are really just wanting to like react forever and ever, eventually you're going to have to get into the wound. You are going to have to go, okay, we're going to have to get the bullet out now. Um, And that is not fun. And that costs money and that costs emotional resources Mm -hmm. and that costs social connections and that costs quitting your job and that costs finding a new church, as you know, and people don't want to do that. No, it costs, yeah, on individual levels, it costs all of that. I mean, that's part of this wilderness, but it's so worth the sacrifice and it's needed. I mean, for the liberation of all of us, women on the margins, men on the margins, LGBTQ, women of color. I'd love to talk just a little bit too about, because the tie in there is amazing. Amazing. I don't know if it's the right word. It's astonishing. Um, The whole white white supremacy. I mean, You bring that up in your book too. So mm-hmm. talk about, if you don't mind, just that intersection um, yeah. with church too. I don't even know if it's an intersection so much as it is like uh, it is. like an entire overlap. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. It's or, or like a constitutive, white supremacy is a constitutive quality of purity culture, right? Okay, um, because 
because purity culture is really just for white people and specifically like the ideal woman in purity culture is a white woman. Um, so my friend Charlotte, uh, in the interview with my friend Charlotte on the modesty chapter, I talk about this a little yes. bit, but just talking about how like specifically Char- Charlotte's experiences, she's a black woman. So she's talking about specifically as a black woman. But um, I think this also applies as we can see to, to other people of color, um, and, you know, unfortunately, like just as we saw with the violence at the the spas in Atlanta, um, that's another part of the white supremacist purity culture, right? People were like, is it racism? Is it sexism? And I'm like, it's both at right. the exact same time. It's not one or the other. They go together because in white evangelical purity culture, that's how it works, right? But so Charlotte's experience, um, she was talking about how like basically black women have been hypersexualized already anyway. Um, so are seen as sort of, what's the word? Ravenous. That's the word I'm yes, looking yes. for. I seen as like kind of sexually ravenous. And so, so black women can't really win in purity culture, right? Like that was you powerful. You have a line in your book. Like it just, black women can't even do like, and yeah. I remember reading that, like, God, because purity so culture right. was invented purity culture as we know it now, the modern phenomena, purity culture, um, was basically invented to ensure the production of white Christian babies, which is kind of gross when you say it like that, Mm -hmm. but it's true. Like that's the bare bones of it. That's the bare bones of what happened. And so, and purity culture prizes the nuclear family, which is not accessible to many poor communities of color, especially globally. Mm -hmm. This idea of like mother, father, 2.5 children, picket fence, God, church on Sundays. Mm -hmm. That's such a very culturally specific way of doing life. I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine. Right. But like, you can't make it so that everybody has to do that. Otherwise they're not doing God's best. That's when we're going to have a fight. So, so there's, there's so many ways in which purity culture is constituted by white supremacy. I was even just this week reading, I'm in divinity school right now, and I am taking a couple, I'm taking a queer theology class and a class on images of Mary in in Christian thought and practice. And so we've been reading a lot of different things. And I was just reading some uh, Marcella Outhouse read this morning and talking about like how this idea of Mary as a virgin makes her inaccessible to to women who aren't white because of the way sexual violence has been used against women of color as like a part of colonization. And, you know, basically how like this, the, the supreme example of womanhood in all of Christianity is, is inaccessible to most women. And so, yeah, even just things like that, where it's just like, we don't think about it. And when I say we, I mean, white folks who grew up in Christianity don't, don't think about it because our experiences map onto that a lot better but it's really, really inaccessible for most folks. And so that's one of the ways in which purity culture really serves to uphold white supremacy in Christian spaces. Yeah. And you do, like I said, you go more into that with your book and the, and the modesty thing. I mean, when you're a fuller figured or what, I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. you can't accomplish these things that yeah. culture, I mean, you're set up to fail and talking about like last time when I said, we just spoke about, you know, these tangible things, better reporting or whatever. Yeah. I I just want people to realize it goes so much deeper. And one of the things I want to talk about that is the whole consent. Yeah. You talk about that in your book. And it was so interesting, even before I started reading your book, talking to my daughter, I was like, you know, because we're afraid as moms, like, what are we just going to give them? Like, go have sex with whoever, whenever. I mean, no, that's not what this is about. No one operates their sexual ethics like that. But yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I even asked my daughter before reading your book, I said, what do you think would have been a better thing to be taught? And she said, consent. And it was just like, yes exactly what you said. So 
Talk a little bit about that because it's completely missing in purity culture. Yeah. So consent is definitely missing in purity culture for a lot of reasons that I go into in the book. But I I think my, uh, I guess, diagnosis of the reason why consent is missing in purity culture is that consent even if you're saying teaching someone to say no, right? Because consent means you get to say yes or no. Consent means you get to decide. Mm -hmm. And purity culture focuses ostensibly a lot on teaching kids to say no, but I don't actually think that's what's going on because no is a boundary. Consent doesn't mean just you say consent-based sex ed. That doesn't mean you say yes to everything. (laughs) Like you also get to say no, you get to say yes or no. And and I think that's the the problem that purity culture has is they want to teach kids to say no without letting them onto the idea that right. they could also possibly say yes. And right. so instead- And, it, and it's saying no to being gay, saying no to sex before marriage. Yeah. Saying, I mean, it's saying just no, no is the only option yeah. to all of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I interrupted I think, you, sorry. No, you're fine. Um, But I think, you know, the ubiquity of sexual assault shows us that like what we've actually taught kids is to say nothing. We haven't taught them to say no. We haven't given them information about their bodies that would help them know if someone is touching them inappropriately, that would help them know like there's adults that you can go to that will not judge you or punish you, but will actually protect you and take care of you. We've not taught them any of that. We've only just taught them to stay silent. And then we wonder why we have a problem, but it's actually just a problem of our own creation. And so, so yeah, I think consent for me, I think people get really, people who are not engaging in this argument in good faith are just like, oh, well, if we just teach kids consent sex ed, doesn't that mean they're just going to do whatever they want whenever and anything goes? And I'm like, uh, okay, well, first of all, I personally don't know anyone. And I know many different people who operate their sexual ethics in many different and varied ways. I personally do not know anyone that thinks that the only appropriate consideration for a sexual encounter is whether the person or persons involved say yes. Mm -hmm. No one operates their sexual ethics like that. There are so many other things to consider from is everyone involved in this situation? Like if I say yes and you say yes, but you're married to someone and you're supposed to be monogamous is, you know, or sexual health reasons, looking into, uh, you know, protection. Like there's so many other considerations that you have to make besides just like, is this something that I'm stoked about? And is the other person stoked about it? Like no one operates their sexual ethics that way. It is a boogeyman. It is a scarecrow. It's just like a fake thing that people talk about it, and it's not in good faith that's what i'm saying when people are like oh so anything goes no no one operates their sexual ethics like that i certainly don't no one i know does that that would not be healthy <laughs> to to right. have that be your one and only consideration there's other thing you know there's always sexual emotional health things that go into deciding with it, whether a sexual encounter is ethical. And so I think people get concerned about that, but that's not actually the case. Consent is just a baseline. Non-consensual sex is assault, right? That's not a sexual encounter. That's mm-hmm. assault. Mm-hmm. So, so consent is just the thing that makes it not assault. Right. Why is that so threatening to Christians? Why, why come you think? Because we have a really big church too problem. Yeah. I mean, so none that, of it's working. Yeah. None of it is working. And that whole consent, I mean, it involves like information, education, yeah. like all of that, not just the whole, all you do is say no, because yeah, that's not happening. Well, and kind of what you were saying, like consent is, is, is bigger because like, for example, it's not consent. If the person doesn't, if the person lies to you about their STI status. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There is consent is not just like, oh yeah, I want to do this right now. There's a, it's a yeah. much bigger, broader term that encompasses a lot of questions and conversations. And like, 
I think a lot of times people who are coming from that perspective have like a really paternalistic view of other people and think like, I know better than they do about what's good for them. And like, you know, surely these people are out here just having like wanton sex all the time. I feel like I'm having a lot less sex than evangelical Christians think I am. <laughs> it's it's that unknown and that scare. I mean, it's just, there, it's so deep and so many layers in your book. I mean, it really is so good, Emily. Like you just do such a top-notch job of diving into all of these things and how related they are. And it's more, it was so eye-opening for me and I know it's going to be for others. And there's so much we did not have time to get into. I mean, your final chapters are about your healing and healing yeah. for other survivors in lots of different tangible ways from therapy to medication, to yoga, to all of that. And so I encourage no matter where you're at in this journey to read your book with an open mind. Is there anything before I tell it? Cause I know we've got to wrap up here shortly. I know you do a lot of these interviews. You could probably get asked a lot of the same <laughs> questions. Is there anything that you, you want to say that maybe you're not asked or you feel like is really important and essential that oh, you man. want to I know. That's a question I had not even considered. <laughs> I don't know. Do you, is there anything that comes to mind with that one? It's a lot, but yeah, I think, I don't know. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot, I have like a, a horrifying fear of being misunderstood. Um, and one, <laughs> one, um, one thing that I think about a lot that I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of weeks, I just hope that people receive the book, how I mean it. Cause I know how I come off. I speak plainly and I speak I, I bring the hammer down and that's just like my style. So I know how I come off, but I hope, I hope that people don't receive it, The book is an indictment, but I hope they don't receive it in like an, I am like maniacally cackling in a high back chair, petting a cat while I watch the church burn. I hope people receive it how I mean it, which is as a gift. I am trying to give a gift. I am trying to hold up a mirror. I'm trying to do y'all a favor. And so I, I, yeah, I just hope people see it like that. I think there's a sense to which when you write a book or like one thing I'm learning is oof, when you get a certain number of followers on Twitter, I've had to have a lot of boundaries with Twitter recently, but like there's a sense in which like when you get to that place, people start to see you less as a person who mm. can like make independent choices and like do things that maybe you don't agree with or whatever. Right. And more as like a symbol. So you're just supposed to be this, like the hunger games, you know what I'm the mocking mm. Jay. Yeah. People start to see you as like a mocking Jay and not a person. And I am a, just like a person, you know, and I'm a person trying to give my friend Hillary in the book says, I'm a person trying to give the gift of wisdom to the church. Not to say that like, I'm the wisest and I know everything, but like I have my experience and I know that me sharing my story and my experience has helped a lot of people. So I'm trying to do that on a broader scale. And I'm trying to turn the mirror back on the church and say, look, like this is what you've done. If you don't like what's in the mirror, you can't, you can change it. You don't have to stay the same. Like right. that's, it is, right. it's fundamentally a message of, I don't think most churches are going to be willing to do the work, but that doesn't mean the work is not possible. So it's fundamentally a message of if you have been part of the problem, you can also be a part of co-creating the solution with survivors at the center. So that's right. And I'm glad you said that because it is, this is about justice, fighting for justice, justice work, you know, and so many of us are taking that like, yes, voices for those at the border or for yeah. women of color. But this is about that. This is about fighting for women of color, LGBTQ, LGBTQ Christians, marginalized mm -hmm. groups. It's a, that's, it's about that. And for uh, ourselves, I think, mm -hmm. um, I think specifically for white folks, there's a very real sense in which if we don't see that our liberation is bound up in everyone else's, we will only ever be doing like white saviorism, like speaking right. for other communities and like trying to save other communities. Right. And I'm like, if, if we don't dismantle white supremacy, I too will be crushed 
by the wheel. Right. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. will you, we will all be crushed if yeah. we don't do the work. Like we are, we have a vested interest in dismantling white supremacy also. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I look at my own daughters and I'm just like, I feel, I hate that I raised my oldest in this, but I feel like now that we're coming out of it and able to talk about it, she's so much stronger and can use her voice and doing the work for it. Yeah. Um, and I just, I'm, I'm thankful for your voice and for leading that for so many women. Listen, groups. for what it's worth, I will never be able to have a conversation with my mother like that ever. But I dream of being able to have a conversation like that with my mother. So you can't go back and change what is in the past, but being able to talk about it now is a huge deal. <laughs> You're making me tear up, Emily. But I think that's just overcoming some of that, that shame of being part of this. And your story is proof that we, we can do better and are doing better. Mine is people need to just get this book, Emily. I'm going to put the link to it. Church Two: How Purity Culture Upholds Abuse and How to Find Healing. And tell me where else you can be found. I know you said Twitter, but other places as well. Yeah, so you can get the book wherever wherever you get books. Um, yes. There's all kinds of ways. The best thing you can do, I tell people. I mean, it's so people are always asking me like, where's the best way to get it? At the, we know it doesn't really matter. You can kind of get it wherever's convenient for you. But I have had a lot of people say um, that they have like called their local bookstores, which is a really nice thing to do in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. If you call your local bookstore and ask them to order mm -hmm. it, they probably will if you ask nicely. And then you are supporting me and also your local bookstore, which is nice. Also, you can find me on Twitter, Emily Joy Poetry. I have boundaries on Twitter now, but you can still find me there. Okay. I'm not on Twitter, so I can't even comment yeah. on that whole world. I, I just, I, just uh. I found out that like, it's actually really unhealthy for me to have an app on my phone that gives me 24 seven access to what 17,000 people think of me. Um, so I was like, mm, all right. Uh, but you can find me there. I, I tweet okay. there every day still. And I'm also Emily Joy Poetry on Instagram. And oh, if you're interested in watching me and my fiance cook, through like some very old school, like church lady cookbooks that we have, uh -huh. like from, like, you know, when churches have like a 50th anniversary and everybody <laughs> sends in their recipes, we've got like a half a dozen of these cookbooks and we are uh, cooking through them together on Instagram at, uh, at church fun. lady recipes. So if I you want to follow up church lady recipes, you can, uh, you can see all of our cooking videos. They're okay. uh, very vulgar, but we'll let you know. That's super fun. Yeah. That is it's been our fun. fun little like self-care thing to do during okay. grad school and quarantine is like every once in a while, we'll be like, let's just make a church lady recipe tonight. <laughs> that answers my question. Cause I try to remember like, what are how, where are you finding joy right now? And it yeah. sounds to me like, that's what you and your yeah. fiance are doing. I'm doing church Being... lady recipes and uh, animal crossing. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Emily, it's just been a gift to be able to talk to you again. Maybe next March we could talk again about it. Yeah. Right. Year. We'll just make it a yearly date. <laughs> I, I'd be up for that, Emily. I appreciate you. I know you're doing this a lot lately and I just appreciate your work and your vulnerability and the example that you are for so many others. So thank you. Thank you for having me again. Thanks so much for listening today. The links on where to find Emily and her book can be found in the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com. Also a big thank you to those who have left reviews for the podcast on iTunes. Reviews help others find the podcast. And of course, I always love hearing from listeners.